Welcome back to the Green Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Chutina, senior reporter at Tearsheet. I've got a great episode for you today, starring special guest Peter Kroll, CEO of Earth Equity Advisors. I always love talking to Peter about all things climate change related, especially ESG, because I feel like he's got a really healthy way of looking at it. There's so much hype in the sector. And as Peter would say, don't believe the hype and always look under the hood. Peter spoke at our Banking on the Planet conference this past July on a similar topic. And I highly encourage you to check out that interview if you're interested in learning more about the ins and outs of sustainable investing. I'll provide a link in the podcast episode description. On today's podcast, Peter and I are again talking about how to think about ESG, but this time with a sprinkle of politics. We've seen a number of states that have started to ban financial institutions that sought to distance themselves from fossil fuel industries, so the drama in the sector shows no signs of slowing down. So all of that and more in today's show, so let's dive right in. We're talking about ESG and I want to, you know, kind of echo what our conversation was at Banking Out of the Planet, which by the way, was super awesome. And thank you for participating. Um, and um, yeah, I think uh, I think you're, the way you laid it out made so much sense. And I think really resonated with a lot of people uh, because there's a lot of folks that are in need for, you know, clarity, definitions, transparency. And but I think also underlying all of this is just like a way to think about things, because this is a new mindset that um, is required by the new world order and what we have laid up out in front of us. And it's not going to be business as usual. Uh, even though, uh, if you look at the markets right now and like what kind of, how many ESG funds you can choose from, it looks like half of the world is, uh, in line with, uh, you know, emission targets and everything, which is really not the case. And, I just find it like uh, it, it, it's such a paradox. Like, how how is that even possible? Like, you know, you've, we've had ESG funds attracting more than $1 trillion over the past few years. Last year was the year of ESG investing. And at the current growth rate, um, Deloitte actually found that professionally managed assets that consider ESG issues are on track to represent half of all professionally managed assets globally by 2024. And how, I mean, what is... That doesn't make sense to me at all. So, what is what's going on here? What's been driving this, uh, you know, the ESG into the mainstream that much? I think if we go back to 2020, um, people had a lot of time on their hands, and what 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 we found. So, so in terms of new assets, it was 2020 was a great year for us. We brought in a ton of new assets, and I think one of the reasons why is people were getting their statements and they were actually opening them up. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've had new clients come in and they've got like six months of statements that are still sealed. They've never actually opened them up. Um, so I think people had time and they were actually opening them up and looking out, looking at them and seeing either A, that they had things like Exxon and you know fossil fuels and different things that really didn't align with who they were, or B, they saw a lot of different mutual funds and things that were in their portfolios that they had no idea what they were, and they wanted to they wanted to understand that more. Uh, so I think that that's some of the drive that we're seeing for the demand. 
Uh, we're also seeing demand come on the institutional side, but it's a different kind of demand. The, the what, what retail investors want versus what institutional investors uh, are calling for are really two different things. Uh, retail investors, uh, based on the clients that we have and the people that I talk to on a regular basis, they want to see investments that are positive. They want to see uh, some intentionality to the underlying assets in any fund, ETF, or or just a uh, individual stock portfolio they have. They want to see that there's a direct link between what they own and something that's going to make change in the world, be it climate change related, environmental, uh, social, et cetera. Whereas on the institutional side, it's more generic. They, they simply want to know that there is some sort of ESG, environmental social governance screen that is, that is being placed over the uh, you know over over the universe of uh, of stocks that are eligible to be in their particular uh, fund, and what we've seen more often than not is that the institutions focus more on the G on the governance side, which I would argue is something that they should be doing anyways outside of any kind of you know ESG um, paradigm, right? And so. It's not really we're not really seeing much in terms of impact on the institutional side. And I think that's where we start to run into the the whole greenwashing topic, which is is a huge one, and it it relates to to your question as well. You know, how can we possibly have fifty percent of assets worldwide, you know in a, in a, in you know considered ESG? Well, the reality is is you can't. Um, and and I broke this down for you when we when we did the um, banking on the planet, but I'll break it down again. The you know the way we look at uh, ESG is ESG is a tool, all right. It's a set of metrics. It's basically numbers. But what we find is that a lot of the big institutional investors, like I was just talking about, but also the big uh, retail. Uh, providers, the Black Rocks of the world, are basically just taking that data, overlaying it on, you know, the S and P 500 or MSCI Ackley or whatever, whatever particular um, index that they want to use, and calling it sustainable. Well, it's not really sustainable. It's basically just a less bad version of the underlying index. So, it, the, the example I like to give is. Uh, You've got an ESG index that reduces its exposure to Exxon. It just simply makes it less bad, right? Um, if you if you reduce or if you if you eliminate uh, ExxonMobil entirely, uh, it makes it better. But if you replace it with something that's actually positive, uh, like say a First Solar or a Vestas Wind or something like that, then it's actually sustainable. But ESG and sustainable are not equivalent to one another. That's really, really uh, well put. And, you know, that's it just shows like the the gap that's between what's, you know, labeled as ESG and what's actual sustainable investing. And um, yeah, just like the number of funds that and the number of options to choose from right now is just overwhelming. Um, but at the same time, I feel there's also more and more technology providers that are looking to enter this market to uh, increase transparency, to pull data together, to uh, create ratings uh, around, um, you know, all these financial products. Uh, how do you think about this industry? And um, like, do you think more, um, I guess, standardization or um, will come from innovation or from technology or more from like, do we need government intervention here? I think we need all of the above. 
because you know we've got a number of rating agencies, at least at least some established ones from MSCI, Sustainalytics. Uh, those are two of the biggies where where most of the institutions are sourcing their data from. The problem is, is when you look at MSCI's ratings and when you look at Sustainalytics ratings, they can be completely, completely uh, different. So, you know, how do you how do you tell which one is right? Is either one of them right? Um, and and how do you you know going forward? How do you have any sense of certainty, uh, or even certainty is not the right word because we're never going to have certainty in this. But how do you have any sense of comfortability that that the the metrics that you're using are are kosher? That they're actually something that that is related to the underlying security. Uh, so we do have to have some form of government intervention where there is a standard set for for disclosure. Um, and and there has to be some accountability related to that disclosure. Uh, if it, it, that way everybody's getting the same data, you can use different algorithms based on how you want to rank things. Like somebody might uh, might um, say that the environmental side is more important, so they focus more on that, or the social side is more important, etc. Uh, but there has to be some standardization across the board. Right now, it's pretty much just a guessing game. Which one? Uh, do you feel is better versus another one? And so when we put together our sustainability portfolios, our individual stock uh, sustainability portfolios, um, we're using some of that data. We actually pull data from Sustainalytics, but we're also just simply looking at what are the industries that we feel need to lead us forward. So we're we're not even starting out from a uh, from a universe that includes everything. We're starting out from a universe that already says, we see what the next economy needs. We know that we need cleaner, clean energy. We know that we need energy efficiency. We know that water is going to be a huge problem going forward. We're already experiencing that out here uh, in the, in the Western United States, where the where the government has come in and said, "Okay, y'all are going to need to reduce the, the amount of water that you're using uh, in several different states." Um, so, so what are the areas that we really think? Uh, are going to be focused in the economy going forward because we all know that when you look at a, a traditional index, that index is based on where the economy was yesterday. It's it's sort of like investing by looking in the rearview mirror. We would much rather invest looking forward. So while we use ESG data to help us pick between the companies that we feel are best, we're also not trying to please everybody at the same time. Um, it's funny, as I keep talking through here, I keep thinking of something else to, to, that's going to relate to this. But, you know, part of what we run into is that institutions are focused on tracking error, you know, and tracking error is how does your investment perform relative to the underlying benchmark, right? We need to get away from the concept of tracking error because tracking error is 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 benchmarking you based on the old economy. Like I just said, we need to be basing, we need to be basing our, our um uh, performance and 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 everything based on where the market's going, and you can't necessarily do that by um, uh, by looking back and seeing what the S and P five hundred is. It just it just doesn't make sense anymore. And so when we put together a portfolio, tracking error does not play into it whatsoever. Where we feel that the where the the economy the market uh, is going and where it not just where it's going but where it needs to go. I mean. The, the the world has agreed that we have to be carbon neutral by 2050. That's too late. I mean, ultimately, 
that's too late. We need to be carbon neutral quicker than that. So what are the companies and what are the industries and sectors that are going to get us to carbon neutral as fast as possible? And what are the ones that are that are also going to help us be uh, resilient in the face of these storms that are going to get worse and worse? Definitely. And um, I really want to, you know, touch upon what you said about um, the industries that are going to be in the future, because this also creates, uh, you know, industries that are going to be left behind. And I feel in, in this kind of rivalry that has that has been created between, uh, you know, sectors that are green and sectors that are red, like the fossil fuel sectors and where it's been uh, there's been a lot of pressure um for financial sector to uh move away from fossil fuel industries and um now we're seeing the backlash of that and now we have um you know we have texas uh placing uh you know they have a list of companies that uh boycott the fossil fuel sector and requiring state pension funds to divest from those companies interestingly on that list only blackrock is us based everyone else is a foreign financial institution uh, Florida, we have Florida passing a resolution banning its pension fund managers from taking ESG considerations into account. And West Virginia is also not gonna lo, no longer gonna award state contracts to JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and BlackRock. So ESG is getting political <laughs> for sure. Um, do you think this is a normal political reaction? Do you think um is it speaks to like a bigger underlying perhaps fear that industries that stood uh very strong in you know those states economies and the US economy as well you know um over the past century almost uh that's now going to change and we're seeing you know the winds of change so what do you think is going on here there's a lot of things going on here so the the I'll start out by saying that a lot of it is just simple simply uh, a dog whistle, if you will, to to these particular politicians base, you know, anything that they can do to rile people up, they're going to do it, you know, whether it's uh, critical race theory, or, uh, you know, ESG, they're going to do something that pits us against them, because that's, that's the way they practice politics. But underlying it is a, a sense that these these states are not preparing for the next economy. They don't want things to change. You know, West Virginia has coal. Um, Texas has oil. Florida has tourists. I mean, I, I don't know what I don't know what florists or Florida's uh, uh, idea is there, but um, they want to protect the industries that they have. And that's that's completely understandable. Um, but at the same time, they're doing a, a serious disservice to their residents by not thinking about where they're going, by, by um, maintaining this stance that well, we're going to continue to dig up coal or we're going to continue to extract oil. You know, it, it, it's sort of the same idea of, um, you know, we've got we, we've got these cell phones now right that do pretty much everything you know, nobody is using a dial uh phone anymore you know it, it it's sort of this concept that we've we've moved past that it's time it's time to move forward and there's they're really stuck um sort of clawing to what they had and and that's sort of a a a, a thing that we do here in the states right we we like the we we, we like the way things were we're not necessarily looking ahead um and so 
you know, these these politicians are taking advantage of that. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, we look at uh, why uh, it wasn't Wyoming, uh, Utah. So Utah got upset that uh, S and P rated their bonds. Um, I believe it was like moderately negative for environmental reasons, and the environmental reasons were uh, is, is drought. Um, the West has severe drought, and it's going to continue to have severe drought, uh, you know, going forward because of climate change. They're just the weather patterns are changing. The the um, water cycle is changing out there, and it is a material fact that drought is going to negatively impact the economy. And so if it's integrated into their ratings, if they're dropping their ratings because of drought, it's something that I want to know as an investor and to be upset about it and to say, well, we shouldn't be, you shouldn't be punishing us because of that. It's not punishment. It's the reality that you haven't planned for an economy that is going to be uh, water sensitive. And, and, and so if you start to actually make, take remedial action, if you actually start to, um, look forward and figure out ways that you can reduce your water usage, um, that you can actually be more efficient, then then maybe that gets that gets fixed. But you know, it, it is a material issue. And you can find that with each of the uh states that are, you know, that are that are outlawing it. And what what what's ironic about the whole thing is BlackRock is probably the largest fossil fuel investor in the world, if I'm I'm pretty sure it is. But yet they're the ones that, and, and believe me, I do not love BlackRock by any stretch of the imagination, but kicking them out of investing pension funds in, in Texas and Florida and West Virginia is is just, you know, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, it's really crazy, um, uh, especially Florida, uh, like Florida's, it, it's, there's a lot of risk there. And, you know, the state has a lot of relationships with insurers, reinsurers, there's a lot of capital that needs backing there. So I'm also, you know, wondering about those relationships, um, given the, you know, the risks that uh, that particular geography uh, uh, has on a yearly basis. Um, if there, if there's any industry that can have the biggest impact on climate change policy, it's insurers because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are um, they're they're the ones who are the arbiters of risk. And so, if municipalities, Florida being a huge example, um, or companies, you know, companies that might have facilities on the coast, if they're not taking steps to um, to, to to mitigate potential climate risks then insurers need to be the ones who are stepping in and saying either A, we're going to start raising your rates because you're not doing something about this, or B, we're going to cancel your policy altogether. Um, we've seen this in Europe. There's a lot uh, European insurers uh, have been on top of this, or, or let's say more on top of this uh, than uh, U.S. insurers are by far. Uh, and But this is an area where we really need to push that industry. They need to be on top of this because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to pay uh, for for all of the things, for all the negative impacts. Well, for sure. And, uh, you know, I haven't covered reinsurance in, in a while, but I do remember that Florida uh, insurers uh, and reinsurance had like the biggest margins, some of the biggest margins in the industry because um, it was a high risk, but low event uh, um, uh, environment. But now it's, you know, it's getting riskier. So they're going to be the first ones to lose money on this. 
Um, and when that happens, um, they're going to charge a lot more for um, for those insurance policies, and that will be felt right by the consumers. Well, and what happened in here in the states is um, the uh, Congress tried to um, actually the FEMA Federal Emergency Management Administration tried to raise rates on coastal properties, and Congress came in and said, "Oh, we, you can't do that." Um, but the reality is, is at the end of the day, the, you know, the American taxpayer is going to end up paying for a lot of that because that's how FEMA works. And Congress didn't want to upset their, their, um, their big contributors, many of whom have houses on the coast and many of whom would end up having to pay higher insurance rates. Uh, so they, you know, they, they, they killed that and, and that's not right. Yeah, it's a lot of, you know, we're still trying to avoid the problem. We're not used to factoring all these new things uh, into our into our equation, into our mindset. Even, you know, I do remember I, I studied economics in college and, you know, sustainability or um, environmental uh, aspects were just like um, a little asterisk on, on the course. And it's something to kind of be legally aware of that you're going to be sued <laughs> in some way or another by some uh, environmental activists uh, that your factory is polluting or something. And that's, that was kind of the, that was kind of it. Um, but anyway, uh, we're close to our time here, Peter. So thank you so much for participating in today's podcast and uh, really looking forward to having you on soon again. To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to tearsheet.co. If you want to know more about the intersection of finance and sustainability, you can subscribe to our free green finance newsletter in your inbox every other week to get more insights and research into this topic. That's also where I'll be featuring every new Green Finance podcast episode. So sign up to stay up to date with all of our content. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Green Finance podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks. So I'll see you at the next one.